Apologies. Oofta. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Ah Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We are here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota. Every week we go over what happened and who's dead now. We'll ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and much, much more. All right, that's enough alliteration. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I help to run a pop culture blog called The Tangential. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I love TV. Today, we are going to talk to Eric Deggins, that's NPR's TV critic, who will talk all about where Fargo fits in the changing TV landscape. But first, we're going to dig into what happened last night on episode two of Fargo. So we open at the Gerhardt's Fargo compound, and the Kansas City mobsters have come to the end of their road trip. They have arrived Meanwhile, the Gerhards are opening sympathy mail. So here we're learning that Otto Gerhardt, the patriarch that we met last episode, is not going to recover from this stroke, despite all the well wishes from all of the mobsters all across the U.S. and Canada, actually. Injun Joe sent porn. So thoughtful. Uh, But for me, so when the Kansas City mobsters pull up to the Gerhardt compound and they climb out of their car and you get the shot of the house, I was having a total godfather moment. Like the idea of this big house, there's the grandkids are running underfoot, there's the aging father in the background, the way they framed that shot. I was like, oh my God, it's Godfather on the prairie. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) Right. And that is the prairie up there in Fargo. The Kansas City mobsters are there to make the family like a deal that they can't refuse, basically. Except that they do. Management says acquire the territory, we acquire it. Whether that's cash down or sending bodies to the morgue, that's up to the crowds. First Gerhardt to switch sides gets a shiny red apple. We've got Floyd Gerhardt, our matriarch, who's taking control after Otto's stroke, and she's ready to lead this family, you know, even though she's just a girl, as we've heard in previous episodes. But that's not quite what the oldest son wants. No, although it's pointed out that Floyd does have that history with Carter B., which I took to be a sly reference to Carter Burwell, who composed the music for Fargo the movie. Thank you, music nerd reference. You're welcome. So yeah, there's much discussion among members of the family, the Gerhardt family, regarding who's going to take over. And of course, they're wondering what happened to Rye, who has not been uh, seen lately. Right? Kieran Culkin, where are you? What's he been up to? Oh, right. We know where Kieran Culkin is. And he's going somewhere even worse. But we'll get to that later. Uh, We also have this really gruesome scene of Dodd out on the farm doing his thing. And this is the first insight I think we get into how evil Dodd is. Are you listening to me? Is he listening to me? Cut off his ears. Wake him up. He's dead. Think. Weak. Then, of course, you get the gratuitous shot of the dog eating the ears. Well, yeah, it's a dog eat ear world. Yeah, well, you know, which is great. So, you, they, I, Roger Ebert likes to point out that dogs are always introduced in movies, and they never do the things that dogs would do, right? Like, this family has a nice dog, and then there's this gruesome murder, blood all over the place, and the, the dog is nowhere to be seen. In reality, you know the dog would be in there eating the ears, at least if it's the Gerhardt's dog. Well, speaking of gruesome crime scenes, uh, let's talk about the Blumquist's house. Uh, that's Peggy and Ed. They took care of Rye after Peggy nailed him 
with her car, and Ed had to finish him off with a garden trowel. And their house has been a little uh, splattered, shall we say. Yeah, Ed's, Ed's got his work cut out for him. We do get another very significant shot of that hanging tennis ball, which we mentioned in the last podcast, sort of uh, made a cameo in episode one. But the tennis ball gets a nice, long, close shot in episode two. You know, it's a nice detail. They know it is. What I love about what's happening between Peggy and Ed here. So Peggy's about to head off into work and Ed is the one who has to stay home and clean up the body. I think that's totally this awesome role reversal where the woman's like, I'm going to go to work and you can stay home and clean it up, which we're definitely getting into the kind of that women's lib idea. And Kirsten Dunst would love to be the one who gets to leave and not do any housework. Yeah. Now, a significant fact we actually didn't mention in the last podcast, but becomes significant. It wasn't clear that it would be, but it sure does in episode two is the fact that Kirsten Dunst has a black eye. Because in episode one, just after Ed had taken out Rye, he's obviously wired and she kind of comes up behind him like, oh, my gosh. And he just sort of swings around instinctually and kind of elbows her in the eye. So it's an accident. But you start to feel like, hmm, people are going to look at Kirsten Dunst's black eye and assume, well, actually, probably assume that something much less gruesome that actually happened happened, but something that uh, would uh, implicate Ed as potentially an abusive partner. She's going to have to explain that black eye, and that's only going to make things worse for them. So Kirsten Dunst shows up for her job at the hair salon. Now we know how she gets those perfect curls. And we meet her coworker, who's the one who wants her to go to these Life Spring seminars. This is a big deal for Kirsten Dunst. She was supposed to head to these seminars and leave her old life behind, but her old life got a lot more complicated in the last 24 hours, and now she's not so sure that she can go to these things. And so we're now meeting Kirsten Dunst's feminist co-worker, who is, you can kind of tell, is kind of seeing the black eye and coming to some assumptions about it. The word we is a castle hun with a moat and a drawbridge. And you know what gets locked up in castles? Dragons. Princesses. Don't be a prisoner of we. And Kirsten Dunst is like, oh, you have no idea what I'm a prisoner of right now. Meanwhile, those Kansas City mobsters have a few other errands that they're trying to run. So their goal now is to find a Gerhardt, any Gerhardt who will betray the family. And they think they might have a good shot if they manage to track down Rye. So they realize that his buddy in the uh, Selectric shop is known to have been recently talking with Rye. So they head over to the uh, typewriter shop or the would-be typewriter shop to have a chat. I was really worried when we walked into that typewriter shop because there's all of this clear plastic over all the typewriters already. I was like, oh, it's already set up to be a crime scene. Like I was just waiting for the blood splatter, but it didn't come. Yeah, that autocorrect technology does not work with blood. We meet Mike Milligan, who we've seen around before, but we haven't really gotten any of his delicious speeches, which he has a lot of in this episode. And he also has the most unique torture technique I think I've seen on TV where he grabs that would-be salesman's tie puts it in the typewriter and then starts typing and hitting return as his neck just gets closer and closer to the keyboard. Oh, the old necktie and the typewriter (laughs) trick. It works every time. Oh, and we should mention that uh, before the mobs show up, the typewriter salesman is on the phone with someone to whom he owes some money, possibly involved with the Gerhardts, because we learned in episode one that he has some significant gambling debts to the Gerhardt family. He was maybe going to sort of figure that out with Rye, but now that Rye's out of the picture, you know, he's feeling desperate, and he's giving lines that are actually straight from the movie Fargo, such as, 
I've got the money, see? So, you, get, you know, that's that's one of the less subtle references to Fargo the movie in this season so far. No, it's good. You've got your keen Fargo movie eye out. Thank you. But yeah, but so then the mob shows up and the tie goes in the typewriter and he squawks to use one of the many mob terms that I have in my vocabulary. The last time he saw Rye, Rye was just going to go talk to this judge. Just talk to her. Except we know that's not really what happened. I mean, there was some talking and then there was a lot of shooting and a lot of blood and it wasn't so much the talking that worked out well. The Kansas City mob knows that Rye went looking for the judge. So now they're going to head in the direction of, guess where? Laverne. And in lovely little Laverne, we have Lou Salverson hanging out with his family on a nice little lunch day. He's got his wife Betsy in the front seat, little Molly in the back seat. Uh, And he's going to take them out to lunch. So he pulls the car into the parking lot of the Waffle Hut. Whoops, closed. (laughs) Right? I feel like that's just what happens if your dad works in law enforcement. He just takes you to lunch at brutal crime scenes that's probably just a regular family moment for for betsy and molly i'm thinking because they just hop out of the car and start making a snowman while lou goes into kind of hunt around the waffle hut and look for more clues yeah my little molly says what's daddy doing and her mom says work stuff you want to build a snowman <laughs> so this is it's kind of interesting to say that this is what molly grew up with is uh you know her dad peering over violent crime scenes at least occasionally we're getting some yeah good insights into the mind of molly back in the diner lou is pretty much he's picking up the bug spray he's thinking okay obviously there was some other confrontation happening here but the real detective work is taking place outside in the snow by the snowman because betsy manages to find rye's revolver hidden in the snow that's great, huh? I found it in the bushes. Fingerprints. Yeah, I know. Jeez, I can't find the barrel. What's that? Oh, Mama's doing Daddy's job again. Go, Mama! <laughs> we found the gun in the snow. The family's out here, and who comes driving by the Waffle Hut very eerily and slowly, just like they would if they were a bunch of Kansas City mobsters... Well, it's the Kansas City mobsters. Ted Danson has pulled a roadblock. He's parked his trooper car right across the road, and the mobsters have to pull up. I should mention here that the people who've been driving the mobsters around this whole time are these bearded twins in white leisure suits. Yes, and they always move in unison. Everything they do is in unison and silently. And we all know twins are just creepy. And what question does Ted Danson have for these guys? (laughs) Well, we know what's on his mind. What size are their shoes? So the leader indicates he's a size 10, but now Ted Danson wants to know, these two guys with you, uh, what size are they? And they indicate the number 11 uh, with, uh, we'll just say, one digit. Yes, they each use one finger to make that number. To make that number 11. Mike Milligan gives another great, hilarious speech. I think we're going to get a lot of speeches from him this season. Uh, kind of going toe-to-toe with Ted Danson. He's clearly not intimidated by being questioned by the law. Obviously, this has happened to him before. And he compares the little town of Laverne to the town in Flintstones, which is like the ultimate cartoon burn. And this kind of, this kind of intimidating speech that Mike Milligan gives is a little bit reminiscent of the one we heard from Billy Bob Thornton in season one, where he's pulled over in Duluth. And he basically just says, okay, I get it. You're the cop. You've got me here. 
But I'm just going to kind of suggest, although Mike Milligan doesn't necessarily say it explicitly, I'm just going to kind of suggest that maybe you want to let this one go. And I'm kind of one of the interesting things for me in watching Ted Danson's character in this season is that in some ways he seems a little putsy, right? It's like he kind of like he has that goofy line looking up at the shoe and he can seem very sort of like hokey and down home and maybe kind of simple, kind of like the Duluth cop was in season one. But he also has this real kind of like, you know, iron resolve to him. And you, we, this, we really see in this scene that, you know, he, okay, he's going to let the boys drive on, but he's not being pushed over. Okay. I got your names and your plate number. I'm going to radio ahead and make sure you make it out of state. If not, I'm going to put out an APB and have you boys round it up. And then we'll talk again. You understand? And we get a little bit of a deeper look at Ted Danson's character again when he goes back to the Waffle Hut and he and Lou have this heart-to-heart about their experiences at war. We get this really intense story from Lou about his time in Vietnam. And we learn that Ted Danson did some time in World War II. And they talk about how what they encountered there comes back to them in the crime scenes that they investigate, sometimes when they least expect it. Yeah, and I'm hoping that this theme in the show gets handled in a more, I don't know, interesting or complex way moving forward. That scene to me was kind of one of the less interesting scenes in the series so far, the first two episodes we've seen. It's sort of like, I don't know, it felt like kind of like a gimme sort of illusion to be making. Yeah, go ahead. We do get that line from Ted Danson saying, Different now, though. After WW2, we went six years without a, without a murder here. Six years. And these days, well, sometimes wonder if you boys didn't bring that war home with you. In Luverne, we've forgotten about Ed. Poor Ed is scrubbing and scrubbing. He cleans off the car. He cleans off the floor. And we get this brutally sad moment of him standing in front of a fireplace in his tidy whities burning his clothes and his beloved belt buckle in the flames. And I, again, I'm going to totally hit this role reversal thing again where Peggy went to work, he stayed home to clean, and now we're getting a man in his underwear standing there instead of a sexualized woman standing in her underwear. This is a very unsexy moment of Ed Blomquist in his tidy whities He just kind of looks like a sad Pooh Bear. <laughs> Pooh Bear, what have you done? Uh, and at the last Except m- in his case, he's wearing only underwear and no shirt, whereas Pooh Bear does it the other way around. That's correct. He tosses the body in the car. He's going to take it to work, where uh, they have some machinery for handling situations like this. Which I knew was going to happen the minute in episode one where we went into the butcher shop. I just thought, oh, no, we're going to be here again, but we're going to be here with a body. And we are. Yeah. But actually, before we talk about what happens in the butcher shop, we should head back to their home, which has now been cleaned by Ed, which is a darn good thing. That was very Minnesota. Put that. That's a darn good darn thing. Good. He cleaned up that blood because his wife is bringing a work friend home, her feminist friend. Peggy and Ed are, of course, short one car now because one car is in the garage with a giant person-sized hole through the windshield. So she took the bus to work and her friend, the feminist, is going to give her a ride home. Peggy here is breaking the first rule of crime scene hiding. Do not have a social event at your home following a murder. 
but her friend just comes right in and asks to use the bathroom. Yeah, and we later learn that her friend has maybe some ulterior motives for that. But I love the scene with her friend alone in the bathroom because first, like, the friend goes to, like, dry her hands and, well, where are the towels? Well, we know what the towels have been used for and where they ended up. But it's kind of like, oh, well, these guys have no towels. So then she looks, the friend looks under the sink and what does she find but a huge stash of toilet paper that was referred to earlier as having gone missing from the beauty shop. What are things coming to? And how did she smuggle that out? I had many questions about the toilet paper. But her friend uses this as this character insight for Peggy and realizes Peggy kind of likes doing bad things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if bad things should happen to include being intimate with someone who's not your husband, and if that someone happens to be your female friend from work, well, hey, all the better doesn't quite happen. Peggy but, doesn't uh, take her up on that offer. The, the offer is there. And you, you hear again, I, I should say, I'm sorry to keep saying all things I was disappointed with in this episode, but I was a little bummed that the feminist co-worker turns out to be hitting on Peggy. So it's kind of like, isn't that just such a cliche that of course, like the empowered feminist work is going to, she's got to be a lesbian, right? Didn't you think that was a little cliche? It could be a cop out. I could see that. But we've learned there is this dark side to Peggy that we kind of saw some hints of earlier. And it may have started with just toilet paper stealing, but I don't think it's going to end there. She's so trapped. She's so desperate. She's just itching to have a more exciting life that even something as mundane as stealing toilet paper was like a little bad thing that she could pull off. And I think she kind of reveled in that. I am still curious to know whether she hit Rye by accident as it seems to be the case, or perhaps on purpose. I'm still holding that out there as a theory. You're on your own with this theory. I think it was an accident. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But luckily she has Ed to clean up her messes because this poor guy has now dragged what's left of rye to the butcher shop. And this was my maybe I should be a vegetarian moment because... Him putting that foot into the meat grinder and watching it spew out the other side. Yeah, so clear reference to the infamous wood chipper scene here. We've got, uh, I've got the even the 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 same body part is going into the uh, into the grinder in the same way as we saw that foot going into the wood chipper in the original movie Fargo. And this is, of course, Rye being uh, ground up by Ed using his professional equipment. This is now late at night. The shop is closed. Um, Ed thinks there's going to be no one around to see anything happening. And so he's happily grinding away, chopping up the body parts. But if there's a light on Main Street after dark, then you must know something's up. Lou Salverson stops by the butcher shop just to get some bacon because Molly loves bacon, even though I was not really feeling bacon at this point or any kind of meat product. And poor Ed kind of bumbles to the door. And in his haste, he oh he lifts up that cleaver and he smashes it down on Rye's hand. And the fingers go skittering across the floor. Oh, brutal. I was losing at this point. Lou Salverson stops by. They make really awkward small talk, you know, like, oh, wives. <laughs> yeah, and this is really like evoking a tone that we are familiar to with from the movie as well, where it's a big, you know, investigative technique for Sergeant Gunderson to sort of try to have a casual conversation with the people she was suspecting and just sort of see how they did with it. Of course, this being the movie Fargo, they did they did poorly. <laughs> it actually does a little bit better than uh, than we saw in the movie Fargo. He's, he keeps his cool fairly well under the circumstances. Until he sees the finger that's sitting out on the floor and he's right behind Lou and it's like, oh, if Lou turns around, he's going to see a finger. It's all going to be over. 
And this is exactly when Lou drops a coin. Of course. And the penny goes skittering right towards that finger. I couldn't, I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Luckily, Ed's powers of misdirection saved him this time. And Lou did not find the evidence, which was right next to him and his bacon. And he walks out of the shop so that Ed can finish up with Rye. Yes. And as the episode ends, we hear a speech that I looked up later because I didn't immediately recognize it. This is sort of like a, a voiceover from a radio program talking about minds drawing their plans against us. I'm like, oh, this has got to be significant. I got to Google this. And so I did. And you know what it's from? It's from War of the Worlds. It's from War of the Worlds. So we... another shout out to the UFO friends. Well, and as we enemies. get that, so we're panning up from Ed disposing of the body. It's dark. We're going up on Main Street and we see the lights again, right? As this War of the Worlds speech come in. And I'm really curious about this because it's not like War of the Worlds. That's not a 70s thing. That's not a a historical reference to that. So what is it doing in that episode? Well, maybe the real villains will turn out to be the aliens here. Maybe some characters will turn out to be aliens. No? Is that is it going too far? No. No way. I mean, I think the aliens will come back, but I okay. don't think the aliens you are involved was... with the mob. Okay. I'm going to draw the line there. Few men even consider the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this Earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. <laughs> Two episodes in, we're going to check in with critic Eric Deggins to talk about where Fargo fits in the changing TV landscape. Eric is NPR's first full-time TV critic and the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Eric, you called the characters in season two of Fargo more absurd, more dangerous, and more hilarious than last season. So what is it that you love so much about the season? And before you start, I know you've seen more than episode two. So just be careful because we're only referring to the first two episodes. We don't want to spoil it for uh, our for our listeners. Okay, well, what I really like about this season is that they've taken the little touches that made the first season so interesting. You know, of course, uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character in the first season was brought the danger. And, of course, um, there were several characters that sort of brought the absurdity and the kind of the humor. But they have spread those out over a, a wider range of characters. And so we, you know, we have... We have lots of characters that are that are dangerous. We have Bokeem Woodbine's character, um, who is sort of an enforcer for these crime guys from Kansas City. He's very dangerous. We have um, Brad Garrett's character, who is sort of, uh, even though he's an executive for the Kansas City uh, Mafia, he also seems like a very dangerous character. And then we also have the Gerhards, who are all dangerous in their own ways, um, and, and some of them absurdly funny in their own ways. And so we just have a wider palette, I think, of characters where the things that I loved about the first season are spread across all of these wonderful, interesting characters that I've never quite seen before on television. And we get to explore their stories in depth. And so it just it just feels like a richer tapestry of stories uh, where we may have had four or five characters in the first season of Fargo that were compelling. Now we've got at least twice that many uh, to, to keep track of and to and to get to know. 
So what do you think about the trend of adapting movies into television shows, which seems uh, resurgent lately? Fargo is the most critically acclaimed TV show to be based on a movie re- recently, but they've also tried it with Scream and Limitless and 12 Monkeys, and they're even talking about doing it with Big. What do you think about this trend? In, in an environment where there's so much television, I mean, this year there's an estimated 400 series. So when you have that kind of competition, if you can bring a new show where the brand is already established in the public's mind, that's an advantage. But I think creatively, the problem is that, um, you know, these these shows are already tired. You know, uh, in many cases, uh, you, you're asking yourself, why are they bringing this back? You know, what what is there left to say about, uh, about the world of Uncle Buck <laughs> that ABC <laughs> has to do a, a, a an all black version of it. I don't I don't really under, understand the, the logic of that. But Fargo is a good example and a cautionary tale to critics like me to say, hey, don't assume just because it's a revival of a movie or continuation of a movie or connected to a movie that it is going to be creatively bankrupt because they had something to say. Well, in another way, now we see moving into the second season of Fargo, that this show in particular is helping to keep that interest, keep it fresh, is to be an anthology series. And clearly Fargo is not the only anthology series to be successful and acclaimed lately. There's American Horror Story. There's True Detective. What do you think is driving this trend of anthology series? In the case of True Detective, uh, the stars of that show signed up for that first season uh, knowing that they would only do one season. Uh, so as Matthew McConaughey said, um, you know, it was like a long movie. So the attraction for um, the stars is that they can come in and they can do something of high quality, but it's a limited period of time. They're not locked into playing the character and they can do something that's critically acclaimed. Then it's up to the people who created the show to reinvent that brand with a new cast, a new story, a new setting. And that can be a wonderful creative challenge. Uh, it is a little counter to the rules of television, where once you establish um, that a certain storyline and certain characters work with the audience, you, you try to mine that as much as you can before you move on to something else. And I think True Detective is an example of how in a modern anthology series where it's the same story over one season and then the storyline and the characters change for the next season, uh, the pitfalls of that, because they created a whole new show. Uh, and 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 it was not as good as the first season, and fans basically bailed on it. You do run that risk of you know reinventing the show to the point where the people who loved it can't recognize it anymore. I got to ask about another thing that's kind of new on the TV landscape, and that's binge watching. Do you think that the idea that someone's now going to sit down and maybe crank through a whole season in a weekend is that on show creators' minds? Again, when you're talking about making a series that's sort of the TV equivalent of a movie, you're already talking about making a series that has a lot of detail in it and that re- rewards repeated viewing, right? It's it's made with care. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Uh, I certainly feel like I have seen the final episode of Breaking Bad probably three or four times. Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a, <laughs> besides the fact I'm a TV critic, I'm just a TV nerd. I'm going to fess up to that. But um, I've watched it three or four times. And every time I watch it, there are new things that I notice. Now, one of the things I've noticed about binge watching is that I think if you if you binge through a season of a show over a weekend, you don't perceive all that detail at first. In a way, binge watching almost feeds into repeated watching. 
because if you're really a fan of the show and you go back and you watch it again, you're going to catch a bunch of stuff that you didn't catch the first time because you were so focused on getting to the end of the story. And um, this is a, a, a kind of consumption I think is related to books. You know, you can power your way through a wonderful book uh, just to get to the end of it and find out how it ends, but then you may reread it uh, months later uh, to take your time and really take in all the details of the story. And I, I think I, I truly believe we're seeing some of that in television. Well, we just have a couple more questions for you, but one of them is either going to be the hardest or the easiest question we're going to ask. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Fargo character so far in season two? Oh, that's a good one, don't you know? Uh, I told you I was going to do that in Bert. Nailed it. Uh, Nailed it. You betcha. Um, Hmm. Okay. I love Bokeem Woodbine's character. What's his name? Mike. Mike Milligan. I like, I like Mike Milligan a lot. He gets a lot of great speeches. My test is when the character comes on screen, am I like dying to see what they do next? I, I, I will admit that so far, I'm the least interested in Kristen Dunst and Jesse Plumman's characters. Whenever they're on screen, I'm sort of waiting to get back <laughs> to the other characters, which is not, not a great sign. Well, yeah, so I was going to ask, you know a little bit more than, than we've gotten to, you know, up to episode four. But what are your predictions about what's going to happen? Oh man, this well, it's 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 great. Um, we know, of course, that the body count's going to be high because Lou told us that in the first season. Right, right? he said enough so, bodies to reach the second story. So exactly. So we know um, that that a lot of people are going to die. But part of watching this is sort of, well, how is that? How are these people going to? You know, who's going to survive? And 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 when somebody dies, why are they going to die? There's so many themes that surface. You know, family-owned businesses versus corporations. You know, traditional mores versus untraditional. The the malaise and the paranoia of the post-Watergate um, era, and this idea that veterans are coming back. There's there's several characters on both sides of the law who are returning veterans. All of this is is uh, endlessly fascinating to me, and I. I, I hesitate to try and predict where it's going to go because a i'm terrible at that <laughs> and b i just want to go along for the ride i i am just eager to see uh where noah hawley takes us i gotta ask one last thing what is up with the ufo that's that's a big question the one of the best things for the people who are writing it is that they know every little thing they put out is going to be dissected by fans you know on platforms like this um but that also means that they can hit fake you a little bit. And it also means that sometimes um, they're going to introduce things that don't pay off. Sometimes it's deliberate uh, and sometimes it's not. I, I do feel that it's important most of the time for writers to treat that responsibly because they have an audience that's very attentive, that really likes the show and is spending a lot of time watching it, discussing it and trying to figure it out. Uh, if you put too many things out there that feel like either deliberate red herrings or feel like you're putting stuff in the story because you don't really know where you're going with it, I, I think that does a disservice to the fans. Uh, it's disrespectful in a way. And so uh, I, I would hope that there's not too many red herrings in this show because that, that can kill my enthusiasm uh, quicker than a, than a bad um, Minnesota accent, don't you know? <laughs> Well, with that accent, can we get your best uh, Minnesota send-off there? <laughs> oh, yeah. You betcha. Thank you. You betcha. 
So more bodies are coming. Who's going to die next if you had to put your money on somebody? Oh, man. I mean, there are a lot of kind of extra members of that Gerhardt clan. <laughs> so I'm thinking that would be the obvious, you know, next casualty. I'm worried about Ed. I think nothing can go right for him. I think he may not be around as long as Peggy. Huh. Who would be the agent of uh, Ed's destruction? At this point, it could be Peggy. I don't know. I'm getting some real nasty vibes from Kirsten Dunst. We'll see. Fine. Take this uh, Take this violent crime as an opportunity for a little self-actualization, perhaps utilizing an ice pick. Oof. Also, is cancer really going to get Betsy Salverson, or is her dogged interest in crime going to somehow end badly? Aw, Jeez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to Kyle Sisko, John Gordon, and Steve Nelson. We are live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Aw Jeez Podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Find more at secretstashrecords.com. Okay, then. Bye now. Bye.